Hello, listeners. I am spreading the word about an incredible opportunity to be with Parker J. Palmer, today's guest and writer, teacher, activist, and author of 10 books, including Let Your Life Speak and On the Brink of Everything. Parker will be leading a webinar on Sunday, March 20th, online and at whatever cost you can pay. The event is called Divided No More, Rejoining Our Inner and Outer Lives, and the premise of this teaching is the idea that many of us seek safety in the divided life, even though it's a painful life. He will challenge us to live divided no more, even though that is never risk-free. But there's a reward inherent, he says, which is a path toward the wholeness and well-being we all yearn for. This will be an amazing two-hour webinar. Uh, And as I said, you pay what you're able to. Parker is known for his wisdom, compassion, and compelling presence. You can find out more details about this course on the homepage of the Center for Courage and Renewal, which is an organization that Parker co-founded. The URL is www.couragerenewal.org. And we'll put the link in today's show as well. Give yourself the gift of these two hours and thanks too for helping to spread the word. Hello, idealists, activists, and writers for a cause. I'm Brooke Warner, one half of this right-minded show, and I'm here with Grant Faulkner. And Grant, I'm super pleased to bring our listeners something this week that celebrates the heart, perhaps in honor of Valentine's Day week, uh, and to talk to someone who's centered so much of his work on the heart and the wisdom of the heart. I was introduced to Parker Palmer's work through my friend Mark Nepo, who brings me so many blessings of his wisdom in my life. Uh, And Parker is one of the most beloved teachers of our times. He is someone who, as I said, is very heart-centered, who walks his talk in the world. And after I invited him to come on the show, I really started absorbing more of his work, reading his books. Um, And what strikes me about him, especially in this moment, you know, where there's just so much toxicity in our discourse is his openness, his humility, how accepting and curious he is. And of course, these are traits that we admire in people, but I don't feel like they're celebrated or valued in the way they should be or maybe the way they used to be. Um, You know, Parker has an anecdote in a book I just finished about how isolation and keeping to our own camps of like-minded people is destroying us. Um, And he suggests that congressmen and congresswomen would do well to take a walk in the city um, or to commute to work on public transportation for the way it forces you to be with strangers and, um, you know, to get comfortable with people who are not like you. And of course, this got me thinking to the importance of reading work by writers who are not like you, you know, writers who maybe are push you a little bit outside of your comfort zone. And so, yeah, I just I thought we'd talk about that on a reading front. You know, I I know we've both had these kinds of experiences with reading, but maybe you could share a book or two that you've recently read that um, served this purpose of, you know, opening your heart or mind to something outside of your experience or your comfort zone for that matter. Yeah, I really like that idea of uh, riding the subway in order to experience people who are outside of your bubble. I think that that's I I haven't done much of that because of the pandemic, but I miss that. 
And I think that that's one way to touch, you know, people who you don't normally come into contact with. But but I recently read a book that took me deeper into those people. It's uh, Invisible Child by Andrea Elliott. And um, she expanded on her acclaimed series for the time about a girl, Dasani Coates, um, who is a homeless or was a homeless uh, New York school girl and her family. It's an amazing story. And Elliott spent years, you know, following them in their daily lives through shelters and schools and courtrooms and welfare offices, you know, places where... I might step into, but I don't find myself in them often and never in the situations that Dasani finds herself in. So the book was really illuminating and disturbing in so many ways about how a family struggles with poverty, homelessness, and addiction in a city and country that doesn't offer a lot of compassion or care. So back to your heart metaphor. We need more heart. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and I'm thinking back to Valerie Kaur's book. You know, we we had her through Women Lit. Uh, so again, an, an archived show people can listen to. She's the author of See No Stranger that centered on these themes that we're talking about today, you know, of the stranger and how divided we are and how powerful it is if you just put yourself into someone else's shoes or see the world through their lens. Um, and many of her anecdotes were about the Sikh community. And I have very little interaction with that community. Um, I know a few people, of course, um, but in reading the book, she brought alive for me the complexities that Sikhs face, um, you know, being the targets of hate crimes and, you know, somewhat uniquely so, especially after 9-11, because people would mislabel them as Muslim or Arab. But she also made the point that that was kind of beside the point whether or not they were mislabeled, right? She's saying we are they. Um, and I think that this is a really important book to read and it touches upon some of Parker's themes. And I also just want to bring up my new favorite writer who has been on, you know, mentioned on the episode now so many multiple times is Kiese Lehman, mostly because he's really changed the way I think about the world, I have to say. You know, I, his writing moves me deeply. He is a black man from the South. Our experiences could not be more different. Um, but he is writing about humanity, you know, and he's he has this deep empathy and he's a revisionist thinker. Um, and what I mean by that is that he's always revising, always rethinking, always challenging himself when new ideas present himself. And I think that's why I love him so much. You know, I think it's a lost art in this culture where we're just expected to stick to our guns and never change our opinions on things lest we be seen as wishy-washy or weak. Um, and so in that, you know, he's role modeling something for me and, and has really changed my thinking on things. Yeah, we need fewer entrenched viewpoints and more uncertainty, I think. And and I say that because uncertainty is usually thought of in a negative light, but I don't think it's a weakness. I think it's a place of curiosity and receptiveness. And as you said with Kiese, uh, a place that invites revision. That's such a cool way to think about uh, one's stance in the world. And I, I, I think about Montaigne, who wore a medallion that said, what do I know? And um, <laughs> he was celebrating doubt as a way of discovering or as a position in the world, which I think is really fruitful because I think doubt plays an important role in empathy and understanding. And it, it certainly diminishes one's impulses of negative judgments, you know, because I think it causes one to pause. And we need more pausing these days, uh, which is a good thing about writing and reading as well. It, uh, they have a built-in pause to try to understand. Yeah, I love that too. Um, you know, there's so many people out there who want to write books to make the world a better place. Um, and obviously that can happen through any genre, right? But it seems to me that um, it is a deeply held human desire to impact people 
with our words. And you would think positively. And of course, we have all these politicians modeling for us how they want to do it negatively. Um, but, you know, I, I do think we find that less with books because books are a different kind of medium. Uh, it's not social media with sound bites and thoughtlessness. <laughs> to write a book, you really have to be thoughtful and present. And also, if you fly off the handle in a book, I think you're going to lose your reader. Nobody wants a rancher on the page when they're reading a book. Um, and, and so there's also, uh, importantly, thank goodness, little tolerance in the publishing industry for hate speech. So I just wanted to address this and offer up how great it is to have an orientation toward making the world a better place with your writing. Uh, and that's not everyone's goal, of course. But Grant, I'm curious in your work with NaNoWriMo, if that comes up as a motivation for writers you, you work with. I actually don't hear it stated as a primary goal for writing, you know, to make the world uh, a better place, but I think it's implicit in the activity. And I think almost all the writers I know have a feeling that putting their story in the world and, um, you know, living the life of, of writing exploration and living it with others, you know, that's where I see it most is writers encouraging other peoples to realize their creative potential. And so they get a sense that they're making the world a better place. And, and then in the terms of storytelling, you know, we're, we're exploring character and desire and conflict, and we're exploring the lows of despair and frustration and the heights of love and breakthrough. So I, I think it's hard to think of a story that doesn't have some sort of inspiration laced within it, you know, some sort of hope to make the world a better place. That's a good point, you know, about it being perhaps implicit rather than explicit. Um, I think many memoirists want to explore their journeys of resilience and in doing so they're showcasing how their lives got better or how they pulled through or survived. Um, and many memoirs are also heroines journeys where the memoirist comes back to the real world after a journey to the depths and they bring with them a gift, right? That gift is symbolic. You know, it can be in the form of a lesson learned or something understood in a new light, uh, an insight. So it's true. I just, I see that strong motivation. And um, even though perhaps people aren't framing the motivations that way, because it might seem a little grandiose, yeah, which is a good thing though. I think I think if a writer writes with the explicit purpose to make a world the world a better place, then I think the story risks being didactic or preachy. And I think it's better for writers just to focus on writing a good story and to trust that the good story makes the world a better place, you know, for literally thousands of reasons, which I'm happy to dedicate an entire podcast to it. In fact. <laughs> we should do that sometime. Yeah. Um, would love it. And uh, in the meantime, we are uh, talking about making the world a better place and people like our guest, Parker Palmer, you know, who's walking his talk. Um, I, I guess what happens is that you write the book that you're going to write and other people People can determine whether you're contributing to making the world a better place. Uh, in Parker's case, he has 10 beautiful books that can keep us company along our journey. And uh, for now, we get to listen to him and his wisdom. So we will be right back with Parker after this short break. Welcome back, everyone. We're honored to have Parker J. Palmer with us today. He's a writer, teacher, and activist whose work speaks deeply to people in many walks of life. He's the author of 10 books, including several best-selling and award-winning titles that have sold nearly 2 million copies. Palmer is the founder and senior partner emeritus of the Center for Courage and Renewal. He holds a PhD in sociology from the University of California at Berkeley, as well as 13 honorary doctorates. 
and he was born and raised in the Chicago area and has lived in lots of places, including New York City, Berkeley, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia. His latest book is On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old, and he and his wife, Sharon Palmer, live in Madison, Wisconsin. Parker, welcome. Thank you for being on the show with us. Well, thank you, Brooke. I'm just delighted to be here with you and Grant. We're delighted. So, um, you know, you've you've landed on a writing podcast today, um, and that is obviously something that you know a lot about because you've written 10 books that have sold over 2 million copies, and you're a beloved writer, and your work is so full of wisdom and grace and heart. And so the first question that we're coming out the gate here is um, to ask you about your writing life. What role does writing play in the day-to-day life or the month-to-month life of Parker Palmer? Well, that's a very inviting question. Thank you. Um, So it plays a a very central role in my life and has for a long time, which is a little counterintuitive. I was the first person in my family to go to college. Uh, The folks who came before me in my family were farmers or blue-collar workers or business people. And um, I never imagined as as a first-generation college student that I might end, end up doing Uh, work of the sort that I do, promulgating ideas and so forth. But um, I think the writing came pretty early on um, because I have such a strong introvert side as well as extrovert side. I've spent a lot of the last 40 or 50 years traveling around the country doing workshops and retreats and building projects of one sort and another. But, um, you know, uh, on your introverted side, that's pretty exhausting, draining work. And so the writing has always given me, from a very young age, a kind of sense of inner refuge and a place to process my experience, to to try to make some sense out of it, to try to make meaning out of um, my life as it has moved along through, you know, all kinds of darkness and light, um, as 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 most of our lives do. So writing has has been a pretty critical part of, uh, in the larger sense of the phrase, staying alive for me, uh, being alive in the world, and and trying to serve in that in that way as well. I was uh, I wrote for years before I got anything published. I think I was forty when I got my first book published, and it was uh, what I've always called an accidental book because. <laughs> I didn't set out to write a book. It just turned out that I I had one and I didn't know it. And uh, through an interesting series of events um, that that came to light and it got published. Um, And that was uh, that was 45, 43 years ago. And um, the process has has kept going to this day. One of the themes, Parker, that makes an appearance in a lot of your work and comes up when you speak has to do with the idea of welcoming the stranger And this stems from a book you wrote in the 1980s called In the Company of Strangers. And you write about this idea of welcoming strangers in more recent books as well, like Healing the Heart of Democracy. So I was wondering, can you share with our listeners who are mostly writers um, about recurring themes in your writing and how you work with recurring themes and how maybe you grow with them? Yeah, thanks, Grant. Another, Another good question. So... Let me say that fundamentally, um, I don't write about what I know. I know that a lot of writing workshops advise uh, would-be writers to write what you know about. 
I write about what baffles me. And that's been a very important principle. I think I was born baffled. Um, And I've said that often enough that people have actually sent me bumper stickers that say born baffled, (laughs) uh, which I I proudly display as I drive around town. Um, You know, I think I came into the world just looking around and saying, wait, what? What's that all about? Um, And that has really animated my writing. And so the the stranger theme that you pick up on um, is 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 has to do with a with a question that's baffled me. Why is it that so many people are afraid of the stranger? Why is it that culturally, historically, in some ways, almost genetically, and in, and in an evolutionary sense, we're afraid of the stranger, when in fact the stranger is the bearer of all kinds of interesting stuff that I don't know because the stranger comes from a different place than I do, has a different life experience than I do. And I've been hugely rewarded by welcoming the stranger in the sense of asking what he or she might have to teach me. I've learned so much that way. Maybe I picked up that habit the most when I was a community organizer in Washington, D.C., working on issues of racial justice, and realizing that this kid who had grown up in an all-white suburb um, and who had the Berkeley experience in the 60s under his belt still had a lot to learn from people who hadn't walked that kind of path. And so a life of listening to the stranger has, has been really, really important to me, and it's fed my writing deeply. As, as far as, I think the most generic theme I can point to, Grant, that I've pursued through all of my books has been a fascination with how our inner and outer lives interact with each other and co-create each other for better and for worse. Um, one of my favorite images is life on the Mobius strip. And if you know that, that interesting shape, Mobius, M-O-B-I-U-S, strip. Uh, it's an object that exists in in 3D space, but it has only one side because you you fold a strip of paper in a way that creates a seamless flow between what seems to be the inner surface and what seems to be the outer surface. You have to keep saying what seems to be, because in reality, there's only one side to the Mobius strip. I think our, our lives are a lot like that. There's a world around us. That's, that's what we fondly recall, call the external side. And there's a world within us, the, the inner side or the backstage side. But everything depends on what we put out into the world from inside of ourselves, what the world throws back at us. Uh, from from out to in, and then how we process what the world throws back at us, as we then return to the world in this in this never ending co creative act, co creating the world and co creating the the self as we go. So I've been fascinated uh, with the question of how does that work, uh, especially in the professions that I care so much about, or the roles that I care so much about, citizenship, teaching and learning, medicine, the law, philanthropy, um, leadership. These are, these are all 
arenas of life in, in which I've done a lot of work with practitioners around how can we better manage that co-creative exchange between us and the world, or more specifically, us and our students, us and our parishioners in the case of religious leaders, politicians and those who support or don't support them, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's been a very generic theme in my writing. That leadership, it would be another way to name one of the themes, but I don't see that as, the mo- as most fundamental. Um, also, the role of community, because we get lost in solitude uh, if we don't have if if we don't travel with a trustworthy community of people who can help us check and correct um, our guidance uh, as we go. So I think those are a few of the sort of red threads that um, tie my various books and articles together. I love what you're saying about co-creation because I was sharing with you before we got on that I had watched this interview with you in Bell Hooks and one of the exchanges that you had was that you were reading each other's work over time and you were in conversation with one another through real life, but also within your books. And, you know, Bell Hooks died recently. And so I thought you'd be a perfect person to ask since she was a friend and colleague of yours. Um, you know, what what would you tell people who might be less familiar with her at this stage about the legacy of her work? Well, I would definitely say, uh, and and bless her memory while I'm saying it, I would definitely say, read what Bell Hooks had to write about education. It's really, really critical stuff. Uh, she's She's well known, of course, for all kinds of topics around diversity and the various dimensions of diversity and the importance of considering them simultaneously and not in isolation from one another um, and issues of justice around all of that. Her work on education is a powerful kind of summation, I think, of a lot of her other themes because the question then becomes, how can education be used to form people in, I'll call them the habits of the heart that make a democracy work, rather than to deform them, as is so often the case, uh, in postures and attitudes and ways of experiencing the world that make them fit subjects for an authoritarian regime, but not genuine participants in a democracy or even in their own lives. So Bell was all about engagement with the world and with each other and and inwardly with ourselves. And uh, as you may remember uh, from that uh, conversation we had uh, a few years back, um, I told Bell at the beginning of, of, uh, of that conversation that every time uh, she wrote a new book, she published a new book, I would rush to the bookstore to see if my name was in the index. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and I said, you know, it wasn't an egoistic act. It was my way of gut checking whether what I was saying uh, had any relevance to the world as it really is. Because if Bell Hooks took it seriously, then I figured I must be on some kind of right track. She really was a litmus test for me um, in, in that regard, a kind of standard bearer of whether I was 
um, just phoning it in or hedging it or fudging it or whether I was on the mark about this or that. She had that kind of eye, that kind of heart, that kind of mind. Well, Parker, I'm going to mention another litmus test that you've passed. I listened to a podcast you did with Krista Tippett's On Being, uh, which is one of my favorite podcasts, and I really revere it. And you were you were talking about how you were trying to describe to your elderly mother what you did for a living. <laughs> and something I struggle with personally, actually, in my case as well. And you told her that you basically just talked to people for a living and left it at that. And it was a really sweet and funny story that I would, so I'd love to have you, you know, retell it here. And and I want to also ask you about this, you know, intersection of the writing life and the speaking life. You know, so many writers struggle with how to amplify their message. And so I'm wondering if we could hear a bit about how you got your start talking to people for a living. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, that's a, I love that. I love that question, Grant. So my mother, it should be said, was a very colorful person. Uh, I'll just use that kind of neutral uh, descriptor. She was complicated and, and very colorful. And she lived to 95. And, you know, she grew up in a world where if you had a job, that meant you drove somewhere to report to work and you went into an office and you had a title of some sort and a regular paycheck. And I had none of those things. I had a P.O. box in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And I was, I, I've always worked uh, for most of my life. I've worked independently as a writer and traveling teacher and activist. And um, so one time I'm visiting her. I think she was around 90. And she said, Parker, I've asked you this before, but um, I, I just still need an answer as if I had never answered the question. Um, I'm worried about you. And, and I think she was worried about me, about me uh, maybe having to move into her basement because I wasn't, I had no visible means of support. <laughs> and she's, she said, now tell me again, what is it you do to, to earn your living? And I said, well, mom, I write books and articles um, uh, about different things that interest me. I, and I hope they interest other people. And so that's a kind of a way of, of, communicating with people, talking with people on the printed page. And then sometimes people who read those books and articles um, will call me up and say, hey, we read this and we'd like you to come give a talk, you know, to our church or our college or our foundation or our organization. And so I'll go and, and give that talk. And, uh, and, uh, and so basically, mom, that's the way I make my living. You know, I've kind of felt like a balloon with the air going out of it because I knew this wasn't <laughs> making any sense to her. Uh, and she paused, and um, I, I, I have this vivid memory of her sitting in a wingback chair in our in our living room in Wilmette, Illinois, with her cane planted firmly in the rug. You know, uh, uh, kind of looking like the Queen of Sheba, I think, with her scepter and. Um, she finally gathered herself up and said, well, Parker, um, she said, uh, I don't mind talking to you, but I certainly wouldn't pay for it. <laughs> 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 so that's, I, I, that should have been the death knell for my career, but I soldiered on. <laughs> I think for me, the, the link between speaking and writing, those, those invitations that I mentioned to my mother, that I get to speak in relation to the books and articles, they've been a really critical part of my writing journey because 
if if you know writing is a very solitary uh quiet act and except for the research you may do you don't get a lot of fresh input from outside your head but when i'm on the road talking with people about the books and about how they apply to the actual lived life of a K through 12 teacher or a university professor or the head of a medical residency program or a, uh, an officer of a major philanthropy or a community organization of some sort. I hear all kinds of things that I could never hear from within myself because those people know things that I don't. They work in the worlds that I care about. And so it's a cost, been a constant refresher for me. It, it of course, it, it makes you vulnerable. Uh, well, writing makes you vulnerable, but the, the feedback on writing is kind of delayed and often sort of muffled or distant. The feedback on a speech where you may have rubbed some people wrong because you misunderstood their daily work, that's instant. And you have to adapt in the moment, and, and you have to think on your feet. And it turned out that the way I'm built, the, the part of, of speaking in public that I love the most is not hearing myself talk. I can do that any time. I, I love the Q&A. I love the dialogue, the conversation, because that's where I grow and learn. So, Parker, I've heard you talk about some ground rules of group work you do through your Center for Courage and Renewal um, as a way to build radical trust. And that's really framed for people you work with in the helping professions. Um, And those ground rules are no fixing, no saving, no advising, no correcting. And of course, it struck me that those would be great rules for writing partners as well. So could you just talk a bit more about those rules and what your experience has been applying them to, to groups and partnerships? Yes, absolutely. Um, so we 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 work with a cohort of let's say twenty five K through twelve teachers or physicians uh, or attorneys or philanthropists who want to deepen their their practice and <clears throat> connect more powerfully with their own identity and integrity and the the folks that they're working with that they want to serve. Um, and we 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 keep that cohort of twenty five people together over time. So we're often talking not just about one weekend retreat where we do this work, but about oh, let's say four weekends uh, during in the course of a year. So it's a considerable amount of time together. We 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 refer to the circles we gather as circles of trust. And one of the ways we create trust is by uh, holding firmly to the ground rules that that you just mentioned, Brooke, that whatever someone in the group says, there there shall be no no fixing, no saving, no advising, and no correcting each other. I, I remember very well back in the early 90s when I announced that ground rule for the first time to the first group of teachers, as it happened, that we were working with. And one of the teachers from the other side of the circle said, wait a minute, I didn't say really, almost screamed, wait a minute, we're going to be meeting together a lot of hours and you've just taken away the only things we know how to do and (laughs) and the things we most love to do, which is to fix, save, and correct each other. Um, And I said, yeah, and we're we're doing that on purpose, of course, because those are the very things that drive 
deep conversation into hiding. Those are the things that make us feel unheard uh, at a very fundamental level. So someone comes to me and says, I'm struggling with this, this terrible loss or this threat to my livelihood or this existential challenge in my life. And I listen for a couple of minutes and then I say, hey, I know exactly how you feel. That happened to me once too. And here's a diet you should go on or here's a book you should read. Um, you know, or a, a discipline you should practice, or here's what I did, here's what you ought to do. And that, of course, is really the height of human arrogance, to think that you can get inside another person's struggle so intimately and so well that you actually know what they should do. And And the further truth is that even if you sort of randomly come up with an answer that might work for them, um, it means nothing to them until they come up with it for themselves. And so these these commonplace behaviors of fixing, saving, advising, and correcting each other actually drive us into hiding. And I'm, I'm convinced that that's one of the reasons we tend to have a lot of shallow conversations in our culture and don't particularly want to return to those conversations. So in this group... In, in our groups, in these circles of trust, part of creating safe space is to say to people, look, you can say what you want here. You can reveal what you want. You're the judge of that. No, is, This is not share or die. You decide how trustworthy the space is. But whatever you say, you're guaranteed that none of those things are going to happen. You're not going to get fixed, corrected, saved, or advised. What What is going to happen is we're going to train everyone in here to ask honest, open questions to whose purpose is to hear each other into deeper and deeper speech. Uh, that That's a phrase that I stole from a writer named Nell Morton, uh, a feminist theologian of a few decades back. This business of hearing each other into deeper and deeper speech is, I'm convinced, one of the most significant services we can render each other. Because we have a conceit in this culture that just because we've said something, we understand it, or we know what it means. But often we don't. Often when we're speaking, or even writing, maybe especially writing, we're struggling to say something that we don't quite yet have a grasp on. Um, and and to be asked an honest, open question, such as, you, you, you say this makes you angry. Can you say more about what that angry feeling looks like or feels like? How do you image it and so forth? It, it's an honest, open question because I can't ask it while thinking, I know the right answer to this question, and I sure hope they give it to me. It's an honest, open question because only the person of whom the question is asked can answer it. Only that person knows the answer. And it's a, what it is really is a, a, an, an honest, open process of inquiry of the sort that science at its best uses. You know, I, I like to say to academics when I work with them, look, nobody ever won a Nobel Prize in physics by telling subatomic particles what they're supposed to be and do. 
you, you win a Nobel Prize in physics by listening deeply to the phenomena, by observing the phenomena deeply, by questioning it, by interrogating it, and coming up with um, answers that come from the subject itself, not from what you think it ought to be or, or is. Let the subject tell you what it is. That's how great science gets done. That's how great scholarship of any sort gets done. So, you know, scholars are at work around the world at this very minute doing that with the subjects that they care about. The wonder is that we can't seem to do that with each other. Um, but in our groups, we do that with each other, and the results are quite remarkable. People regularly discover that they have answers within themselves that they didn't know they had. You can watch it happening, and this kind of surprise comes over a person's face um, as they realize, oh, I now I see the question behind the question. Now I hear the answer behind the answer, and it came from within me. Well, I wanted to touch uh, base because we, we talked uh, at the top of the show about an upcoming webinar that you're putting on on March 20th. Uh, I know this on the subject of kind of an extension of what you were talking about, I think a, a bit about how we can rejoin our inner and outer lives, which speaks to the fact that we're, we're living divided lives often. And certainly uh, divided lives or divisiveness, uh, that's a theme of our present age, you know, whether it's in ourselves, our politics or our media. And so I was wondering, how do you encourage people during a time like the one we're in when everything feels so difficult and so div divisive? It's tough, isn't it? It's, it's tough for all of us. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm basically a hopeful person. As long as I understand hope in terms of action, not just an attitude, um, my, my, my hallmark of hope is the willingness to get up every morning and t try to take you know, one more s small step in the tragic gap uh, toward making something a little bit righter, a little bit truer, a little bit more just, a little bit more loving. And if I can, if I can keep doing that, then I have a, an action-based justification for an attitude of hope. Because if I lose that attitude of hope, why even get up in the morning, let alone take an action? Why not just sit in the corner, facing the corner, sucking my thumb? I just don't think that's a fit way for an adult to live. Um, and so hope stays alive in me for that very simple reason. It animates, it animates action. But it's a struggle. It's a struggle for everyone. Um, we'll be talking about all kinds of things in that workshop, which, uh, as, as, as you know, Grant Brooke is helping me with. It wouldn't be a workshop that weren't Brooke because I don't know how to do these things uh, <laughs> online. And so that's a, it's a wonderful opportunity. And I'm so glad that uh, she and I are working together on it. Um, I think a couple of things that are really important to me about this business of getting up and taking s steps of, of, that are hopeful, um, doing what you can within the limits of your own life. I'm 83 just about. And um, there are a lot of things I can't do anymore. Um, and especially under uh, COVID conditions. But there's a lot I can do uh, within reach of my own life. And I guess the workshop is, you know, is one offering from within my limited reach. But I think just to boil it down to everyday stuff, and I think this applies to writers, 
we, we, we really have to value small steps because in the final analysis, that's all any one of us can take. I once heard Wendell Berry asked uh, a question by a member of the audience when he was talking about the ecological crisis. And it was a, you know, we got a big problem. What's the big answer? And Wendell Berry said, look, there has never been to any one big problem one big answer. The answer has always been a million, million small answers and the cumulative effect of of those answers. I've seen that. I think I've literally seen that with my own eyes in my work with people of color who have been deeply immersed in liberation movements like the Black Liberation Movement in this country, which began not in the mid-20th century, but the first day a slave ship hit these shores. Um, the, the, the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century built, was built upon the ancestral inspiration of all of those young men and women um, who who uh, stood on the shoulders of 12, 13 generations of ancestors who had maybe a half a degree of freedom in their oppressed lives, but who used that half a degree to its fullest possibilities. That was a movement built on singing a hymn here, reading a gospel lesson over there, uh, taking a small um, step toward liberty in this case and another one in that case, bit by bit, row by row, as the song goes, cumulative effect of many, many generations of ancestral engagement is what inspired and lifted those young people in the 1950s and 60s to mount a movement that changed the lay and the law of the land. And of course, we're still involved in that movement. There's the fierce urgency of now, absolutely. Why haven't things changed? They must change and they must change now. But it's always important to remember that that phrase, the fierce urgency of now, came from a movement that is built upon 12 or 13 generations of ancestral engagement. And you don't have to listen very long among people of color uh, who are engaged that way to hear them say, it's the ancestors that keep me going. It's the ancestors to whom I turn. It's the ancestors that I consult for wisdom about my next step. So I think for folks like me, it's just critical to keep doing what you're able to do and listen to the stranger, right? Mm-hmm. To, loop, to loop back to our first question, listen to the stranger who has struggled uh, longer and deeper and uh, with more existential uh, urgency at stake than I've had to do in my life for clues and wise guidance about what I need to do next. Well, that's a beautiful note to end on, Parker. I want to invite all of our listeners to check out the show notes because you'll see there the link to the webinar where we'll both be on uh, March 20th. And thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today. 
Well, thanks to both of you. I've really enjoyed it and uh, wish you all the best in the, in, the, in the stuff you're doing. Thanks once again, Parker. Really enjoyed it. You bet. Take good care. We will be right back with today's book trend. Today's book trend is AI-enabled auto-narration, which is also called TTS, or text-to-speech. And this is a trend grant that has people divided because companies, of course, are seeing profit to be made here, while audiobook narrators are seeing it as a way that machines will take over their human jobs. So it's another complicated topic slash trend. Yeah. And uh, as, as the old cliche goes, follow the money. So let's look at the money, <laughs> yeah. which is what drives the innovation. Um, audiobook sales in 2020 have been, you know, going bonkers. Um, they exceeded $1.3 billion, which was up 12% over 2019. And 46% of all adults have listened to an audiobook. And that's, that's a number that's also way up. But audiobooks, the thing that's interesting about them is they're very hard to produce and they're expensive. Uh, especially because humans, the talent, you know, it takes hours and hours to create the content needed for the books. Yeah. And, you know, in the past years, um, it's never felt like a possibility that you would want to have like a robotic sounding voice, obviously, um, or even the nicer versions of that. Um, You know, listening to that for 15 plus hours could get very tedious. But companies, of course, have been working away to make their audio narration AI voices sound indistinguishable, according to them, um, from human voices. Uh, But then on the flip side of that, you have ACX, which is Audible's audiobook self-publishing platform from requiring a human narrator as of this moment. Um, so in fact, right now, the AI-generated voices are in fact disallowed. Hmm. I mean, I'm just, this is making me think that maybe we could get AI to do our podcast, actually. Um, <laughs> Amazing idea. <laughs> yeah, we save so much shot. time. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, any of our readers who are interested in this should go check out some samples because we did. And honestly, they're, they're pretty good. Um, but I, I don't think we're quite there yet. And, and even people in this space are saying, you know, this is for nonfiction prescriptive books only at the moment. And even then, I think I'd struggle with the cadence because it's, it's just not human. You don't even know. Like, you know I'm human, right? Because I'm making mistakes. <laughs> exactly. Um, although, you know, I think we would be less tolerant of the mistakes in the audiobooks, but still, um, I think there's, I would listen to them actually, and they're a little less than perfect. So I definitely had that moment where I was like, uh, we're talking about it a lot, but we're not quite there. And then um, the professionals are the ones, though, of course, who have stuff to lose. And so Emily Lawrence, who is an audiobook narrator and co founder of the Professional Audiobook Narrators Association, recently told Publishers Weekly um, that the negatives really do outweigh the positives and her reasons included things like loss of livelihoods, loss of integrity in storytelling and loss of personal connection. Yeah. So back to the numbers, the benefits are financial and often that wins the day though. So we'll see what comes of this one and if and when ACX changes their rules will probably be the tipping point for I. AI narration. So welcome to a brave new world. Yep. For better and for worse. Uh, we, however, I hope anyway, are only for the better in your week to week. So also, hey, if you have a trend that you want us to know about, uh, find us on social media. I think we're on all the platforms except TikTok. And you all know we're a weekly podcast uh, here week in and week out, trying to find interesting stuff for all of you writers out there. So we will be back in your queue next week. 